Big 12 football championship, and as I promised you last spring, I didn't get to see the whole game, but I saw some of the end of it, and I rejoiced. I felt like uh, the Wildcats deserved to win, uh, you know, a goal line stand in overtime to stop, you know, one of the best teams in the nation. I still hope Chris, Texas Christian wins, gets into the playoffs, but, but uh, well-deserved win for the Wildcats. Uh, looks like they may be headed to the Sugar and. Uh, hopefully KU will be headed to the toilet bowl, but, uh, but it, for both schools, for both schools, this was an outstanding season. <laughs> It'll be somewhere, I don't know where, but some little town somewhere. Hey, you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, okay? And they say that it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Well, for many perhaps most, but not necessarily everybody. There are some people who have some really hard feelings during Christmas because of past experiences. But uh, today, in a world where, where biblical authority, even reality, is increasingly denied or ignored, we want to take a look at how we can sustain the true value, the true meaning and the true joy of these holy observances. The word holiday is just a contraction for holy day. And let me suggest that to keep the true meaning of this holy day celebration, we must first ourselves understand the nature and the significance of what we're endeavoring to sustain. We have a saying in our home that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. Uh, and certainly this is the case when we enter what we call the Advent season, the four weeks before the birth of Christ, one of the most significant aspects of the Christian faith. Uh, Advent comes from the Latin uh, to come or to arrive. And the question of why Christians celebrate this season should cause us to look at why God became flesh and dwelt among us. But somehow, when we think about what goes on this time of year, we can lose sight of that question. Is it possible that our holiday activities and attitudes do very little to sustain that true meaning, but rather in some way cloud in the minds of many that true nature of the purpose of the coming of Christ. Now, we have a lot that goes into the Christmas season, and we need to keep in mind that the trappings that we witness and even participate in a day are not rooted in antiquity, okay? Most of the things that we see, the tree, the, you know, the Santas, the, the, the decorations and all that, would not be seen or even thought of just a couple of hundred of years ago. It's a bit like the evolution of weddings. You know, we get more and more added on as time goes by. But before before we address the meaning of the season, I want to say that I find it really hard to scrutinize what happens at Christmas time. I always relish the season, the atmosphere, and Christy is especially good at creating memories with traditions. We've even done skits when the kids were little, and decorations. 
boxes and boxes of declarations. And that's what my back tells me. All right. Last Christmas was our first without a child living in the home, and Ben moved out in, in early 2021 to live with friends, and that presented a problem for us. How could we carry on our Christmas morning tradition? So uh, we urged and cajoled Ben to spend the night with us on Christmas Eve, <laughs> and as we had done for the previous 30-some years, in the dark, Christy and I lit our candles, and we walked to Ben's room singing, O come all ye faithful, come let us adore him, you know, ad nauseum. And that would lead him downstairs to the living room where uh, we would open up, he would open up his shepherd's bag with essentials like uh, socks and deodorant and of course, an orange. Now, it wasn't near, didn't take nearly as long as, as it did when we had as many as 10 to wake up and lead down, but at least it was a gradual withdrawal from our Christmas morning fix, I mean tradition, <laughs> but that tradition will probably pass away, my dear, I'm sorry. Now, I enjoy the, the traditions, the sights, the sounds, the warm feelings of Christians as much as anybody. You know, I've even cried during a Christmas movie, believe it or not. So, hence the subtitle, I am not Scrooge. Really, I'm not. However, at the risk of being called something like Scrooge, please allow me to engage my cold, sterile, compartmentalized, analytical male brain and take a little more objective view at what's really going on here. So please try not to react to my words, but rather take a step back and consider what we might, in the end, not abandon our traditions, even our emotions, but keep the main thing the main thing. Okay? So let's be honest. The cultural aura of Christmas is driven by a combination of feelings and memories, sentimentality, and commercialism. Now, I'm sure that all of us have been drawn into the materialistic milieu of the Christmas season. And how does the culture condition little children to view this most holy of events? Now, think about this. What picture comes to your mind? Isn't it a bunch of little feet running down in their onesies to the Christmas tree to attack all the boxes under the trees, opening up that first one and looking at that toy for at least seven seconds before he or she attacks the second one? And all the conscientious but horrified parents saying, go say thank you or go hug your big sister or your grandpa, you know, seeing the ugly head of materialism arising on this most holy of Christmas morn. So, has anybody experienced that? I don't know. That, I, some of us have. Some of us have. Before our clan called a truce on, and negotiated a treaty on gift-giving, it was complete chaos. After a short while, I would see a mounting disarray building in front of me, and I would navigate between little squirming bodies, grabbing up a small mountain of torn paper, throwing it into the fire, and making those closest sweat. <laughs> Culturally, though, we see it most clearly in movies. 
Uh, now, I'm going to start with not the sublime, but the ridiculous. A Christmas Story was an early 80s movie, which was billed as, quote, a tribute to the original, traditional, 100% red-blooded, two-fisted, all-American Christmas. Okay? Ralphie, as an adult, narrates through his eyes as a young boy in the 1940s when all he wants is an official Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot air rifle. But all the adults squelch his dream with, you'll just shoot your eye out, kid. And he hears it even when he makes the request to an irritable department store Santa approaching quitting time who shoves Ralphie down the slide with his big black boot with a sinister ho, ho, ho. Yeah. Now, uh, apparently there's a sequel coming out with Ralphie grown up in the 70s, so we'll see. I have no idea what that's going to be about. But When we're really bored, we have watched a few of the Hallmark Christmas movies, and I soon realize they all have the same plot. <laughs> the, the beautiful young girl meets the handsome young man, all in perfectly decorated houses, uh, and all around the prop of Christmas. Uh, and they live happily ever after. Again, a, a warning about this year. Apparently, there's going to be one of those from Hallmark come out with a same-sex couple. So be careful. It's a Wonderful Life came out 75 years ago. And it's a classic that's made a comeback in the last decade or two. And it's all about the triumph of good over the evil Mr. Potter. Heaven is assumed through Clarence, the bumbling angel, who shows George Bailey how important his life was and how different the world would be without him when George contemplated suicide. Uh, George's friends show up and with uh, gratitude in coming to his rescue in his hour of need, and as the, the Christmas tree bell tinkles, Zuzu announces that an angel, Clarence, has won his wings. Now, my all-time favorite movie is The Christmas Carol, based on the story written by Charles Dickens. Now, this is a true classic uh, from which one can draw lessons about greed and its consequences. And Scrooge sees the trajectory of his life from Christmas goes past, present, and likely future. Uh, and it leads him to repentance and transformation. So Scrooge, this quintessential miser, becomes a caring giver, albeit late in life. And so his lesson that he learned was, it's never too late to change course, that is, until it is too late. This literary masterpiece displays Christian love and charity, redemption and forgiveness. Therefore, it's a, it, it provides a great opportunity to influence or point others to Christ if you're intentional. Yet, the most direct reference to Jesus Christ that I can recall is when Tiny Tim comes home with his dad from church uh, and says that he hoped people in church saw him with his crutch to, quote, remember on Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. And of course, his famous, God bless us, everyone. The very fact that this is a classic and a favorite story is a good thing. But it is clear that it can be enjoyed by unbelievers as just a part of the Christian or the Christmas legend. So what is Christmas? What do we celebrate this time of year? And how can we actually point 
to Jesus. Can we be a little more thought-provoking than simply saying, remember the reason for the season? For some, the reason is the trappings, the gifts, the cookies, and the feelings. So we need to be clear why God sent his son in the flesh. And with that awareness and in that context, we'll be more able, better able, to effectively encourage others to remember the real reason for the season. So we'll start in 1 John 3 here, where it says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. So why do we anticipate the events of the next few weeks? For the believer, it is the deep awareness that first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to pay for our sins. Now, that tr- the truth of this fact is the very heart of all the Gospels. Matthew records the memorable words of the angel to Joseph in chapter 1. He says, when this baby comes and is born, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Luke provides the account of the message given by the angels to the shepherds in the inaugural Christmas concert of angelic hosts singing. And the message the angels was this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. John's gospel takes a very different vantage point completely with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching and turns to those who had followed him and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John, writing as an old man in his first John letter here, is not proclaiming a doctrine in which readers of today's gospel are unfamiliar, but rather he's pointing to and emphasizing a vital truth taught throughout the scriptures. Now, if our message at Christmas is that God has shown his love for us, then what we say is accurate, it is essential to the gospel, but it is not sufficient. If we suggest that God became man merely to show us what a mess we're in, then what we say is not insufficient, it is totally inaccurate. And so we have to search the word to understand. Paul said it perfectly in Romans 5 where he speaks of the demonstration of God's love for us in these terms. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And it's not that he sent a son, Jesus, as a baby in Bethlehem, the memory of which should create a sentimental response in our lives, but demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those who believe in Christ should grasp this truth with real joy or gratitude regardless of the emotional baggage that may come from unpleasant Christmas experiences. But we must also realize that many of our friends who may be a little more open to the Christian message at this time of year because of their feelings for the seasons are neighbors and acquaintances, even relatives whose minds, frankly, are blind to the truth of God's word. It will mean very little, in fact, nothing, if we present and perpetuate in them the sugar-coated notion that Christmas is nothing more than a demonstration of God's love and the brotherhood of man. 
In fact, the demonstration of God's love can only be explained and fully understood when that friend realizes that first and primary purpose that Christ came, the purpose that is essential to our eternal existence is to take away our sins. If one is pressed to the conclusion that God came to take away our sins, it doesn't take an Einstein to understand that we have sins which need to be taken away. But this is the very conclusion that the atheist has, if he's thought it through, wants to avoid. If there is a right and a wrong that Christians call sin, then that puts a limit on what the atheist may do. His desire is to be free from constraints in lifestyle that force the atheist to deny the existence of God. To help such a person, one could ask, have you ever done anything that was wrong? Or have you ever said to yourself, I wish I really hadn't done that? Now, I can't imagine anybody, even an atheist, would be so blind or self-righteous to deny either. But this presents a dilemma for him or her. Why is anything wrong? Uh, If there's no standard setter for right and wrong, is it just your opinion or mine? If there's no morality determined, is, is morality determined by society? And if so, who's to say that anybody's personal morality or the cultural moral standards are of one or another are any better or worse than anyone else. We freedom-loving Americans would have no right or basis to claim moral superiority over murderous communists, terrorists, or Nazis. Now, to address such a situation, there are several scientific arguments for the necessity of the existence of God, but the moral argument is the easiest to understand and communicate and perhaps the most convincing. Now, this is not a message on apologetics, so I won't go further, but this is what all of us, especially the young in today's culture, must fully grasp. If we're actually getting closer to the possibility of real persecution, a subject we covered just a few weeks ago, we must know not just what we believe, but why we believe it. It needs to be something that the young people take in and own. Okay, back to our day-to-day interaction about the Christmas season. The Christian who really wants to spread the true Christmas spirit must do more than greet with a cheery Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. Why? Because until one faces the reality of the problem of sin, then the need for its cure the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not very compelling. In fact, it does not even come to mind. If we unwittingly perpetuate the notion that Christmas is only about peace on earth, goodwill towards men, symbolized by the legend of a baby born in a manger to whom gifts were given, which leads us to feed our emotions and fuel our economy by buying gifts for one another, where does that leave the unbeliever when she wakes up on January the 2nd, back to the day-to-day grind, perhaps with a few more toys. Let me suggest that the reason that Christians have such minimal impact at Christmas time is because we do not address the question of sin in our proclamation of the gospel. So we ask people to respond to Jesus at a level that the scriptures never, ever do. This level is one of good cheer, feeling, and materialism for its own sake. God's word tells us that he is a loving father 
but he's also holy, righteous, and just. His standard is perfect obedience to his moral law, a bar we are completely incapable of clearing. Unbelievers think a truly loving God will admit them because they have not murdered anybody or committed adultery. But Jesus said, if you're simply angry with your brother without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've lusted after another, you've committed adultery in your heart. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not innocent. We all sin and fall short of fact that is lost in a sea of red, white, and green cheer. This goodwill and sentimentality cloud over the best news that Christ came to take away our sins. And until we face the reality of the problem, then the necessity of its cure seems to be rather superficial. Jesus uncovers our desperate need in Luke 19 when he confronts Zacchaeus and he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. It's only the sick who need a doctor. It's only the sinner who needs a Savior. Who's sick? All of us. Why did Jesus come? First, to take away our sins. Uh, before moving on, I want to throw out a small practical suggestion. You know, greetings are a little opportunity to witness. You know, and what's the most common thing that people say when they greet you? Isn't it, how are you doing? Okay, and most of us will say, fine, we're good, you know, everything's just peachy. But uh, Dave Ramsey turned that into a witness when he said, better than I deserve. Okay, now that's an unexpected response, and it is not guaranteed, but more likely to make another person wonder, what do you mean better than you deserve? And maybe, just maybe, ask questions. And I think we miss several real opportunities just by force of habit during this season. Of course, the most common greeting these days would be Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas, right? And in fact, most of us uh, feel grateful just that somebody would recognize the season and, and Christmas being an event. So we respond in like kind with the same knee-jerk compulsory, Merry Christmas to you. Well, first, there's nothing wrong with that response, nothing at all. But is there a better one? Okay, With a little forethought and a little bit of discipline, uh, we could really focus on what the good news is, why we should be married. And now, I put some suggestions, just suggestions that I thought of, perhaps you'll have more on that you can come up with. Uh, uh, this came up uh, just recently when I was uh, walking out of, of some, some place and somebody said, Merry Christmas. And I started to think, I'm teaching this message. I know I'm going to tell people to come up with something else. And I came up with one and I can't remember it. <laughs> so, so before I got out the door, the only thing I could, I could think of was, He is risen. <laughs> Not exactly the... <laughs> Yeah, so it, that just shows we are creatures of habit. So when somebody says Merry Christmas, we return the same, you know. <laughs> and, and so you got to think about one. Pick out one that is simple, one that you can remember, and then be intentional, okay? Don't try to come up with a bunch of variety. Just get one to make people think, to be a little witness. Okay, a second reason be Jesus came as a baby 
is not one we normally associate with Christmas. First uh, John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You know, the nativity scene does, doesn't seem to conjure up those kinds of thoughts. Uh, any consideration of the devil and his works must always guard against two extremes. First of all, ignoring him altogether. Oh, you mean that little red guy with the pointed tail? Yeah, yeah, sure. Or, and, and so they ignore him altogether. The other extreme would be becoming totally preoccupied with who he is and what he does. Both views are wrong, and the scriptures give us the perfect balance. The, the very real source of the power of the evil one should only ever be considered in light of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way when he says, by his death he might destroy in his coming him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Okay, now we're going to go through this a little bit here. Do you think Satan is working today? If not, who's running the human trafficking rings? Who is spreading thoughts of ethnic division? What caused people to turn to drugs and deadly addiction? How do we get such hateful, vile filth that gushes out of so much music and into the hearts of young people? How can the, the voters of one very conservative state vote to allow unrestricted taking of the life of the preborn? And another state, very conservative, vote to not require life-sustaining care for the children after live birth, as just happened. How do we get to the point where many of the young have rejected both biological and biblical truth as to gender? Why are so many males so absorbed with satisfying their own desires, yet so uncaring of their offspring and their mothers? Why are so many males missing in action so that their sons and daughters have no way to recognize what a real man is, one who they may call dad face to face? Why are so many churches where the only Bible verses, passages you ever hear are Luke 2 at Christmas and the, and the resurrection accounts at Easter, yet sin and the clear need for salvation is never mentioned. If the devil is no longer around, then who's carrying on this work? If the devil's not around and there's no sin, there's no hell, there's no need for a Jesus, a heaven, or a salvation. And this morning, some of us in various aspects of our lives are very aware of the conflict in which we live that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And we need to remind ourselves in the midst of this struggle that part of the purposes of Christ's coming was to destroy the devil's work and to prepare him for final destruction. So what exactly does the devil do? The devil twists the truth about Christ and the character of God so that we in the world at large people will say, well, yeah, I... I think there's a God, or you know, I know there must be a God out there, but they really don't know God, and they don't understand this Christmas at all. They know that there must be a God, but they don't know, they don't believe in that God. Why? Because the devil has done his work by inoculating them against reality, by giving them a little taste of unreality. So many people, perhaps a majority of people in America, may be in far more vulnerable positions in light of eternity 
than are some isolated in third world country villages because some of those primitive villages have never even heard. And it's hard to, to believe that anybody in America has not heard of Jesus. It's just that Jesus has been diluted and clouded over by so much that is good but irrelevant to the gospel. So the devil's strategy is as a slanderer. Have immoral thoughts ever come into your mind? Have they have in mind? Do you know its source? These are the fiery darts of Satan. He uses temptation, distraction, disruption, and abuse to divert us from our connection and our devotion to God. So don't be surprised by these things. The silver lining is that this ambush, uh, instead of being evidence of your lostness, is evidence that Satan knows you are saved and wants to emasculate your testimony and your walk with God. The evil one blinds the minds of the unbelievers and seeks to cloud the minds of believers with reminders of their guilt and their failure. But the greatest news is that he is finished. The devil is finished. Thank you. Christ's victory in Calvary over the devil is like a dog chained to a stake. And so he can bark and yip and and bite at us through thin air, but Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 5 tells us, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one does not touch him. So in a very real sense, Satan is chained to the cross of Christ. And that in the purposes of God, the devil now awaits his final destruction on the day of Christ's revelation. Now he is dethroned and defeated but he has not yet been destroyed. That comes in the end where John describes in Revelation 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's why we all have temptations. He can't prevent us from becoming a believer. He knows you're in Christ, but he tries his best to render us useless. He can't prevent the church from going on, but he says, I will do everything I can to dilute the truth and confuse those in in the pews. Perhaps I can turn the bride of Christ into a harlot. And as we think of the arrival of Jesus Christ, perhaps in a way we've never thought before, let us realize that the Lord Jesus came not only to take away our sins, but also he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. It's interesting to note in John 17 where Jesus prays not that we would be taken out of this world, but that we will be kept safe from the evil one. Thirdly, the Lord came to make the Father known. It's not hard to imagine a primary Sunday school class of little kids and uh, after the lesson, the, uh, the, school teach, the uh, Sunday school teacher gives them some watercolors or markers or whatever they use these days to, to make up a picture about the lesson. And she's walking around the room, and she comes to little Johnny and says, Johnny, what are you making? And he says, I'm, I'm making a picture of God. Now, now, she's a little concerned here because he might come up with a picture of the old man in a robe with a big white beard, and she doesn't want him to be confused. And so she cautiously 
uh, encourages, you know, Johnny, we don't really know what God looks like. And he says, well, come back in a little while and you'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, most of mankind has always known and admitted that there has to be a creator of the universe, a force outside the natural, a supernatural force that acts in our lives. Therefore, in antiquity and today, uh, many have made up various gods to explain why things are the way they are. In a sense, these man-made gods are really idols made in our own image. And they think the gods look, how they think the gods look and how they want them to behave. However, the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem brought into view what, is, what the true God was really like. That arrival points once and for all to the futility of trying to make a God in our own image. And the Lord Jesus appeared on the stage of human history, and he rendered obsolete the various mythical concoctions as to the nature of God. As the writer of Hebrews put it, in many and various ways God spoke of old by the prophets. In other words, he spoke with a diversified word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. God has woven his character and his nature all the way through the Old Testament, and now here in Bethlehem, the one long awaited, the light of the world, appears. And from that baby will come the manifestation of the reality of God. So if we trace from the time of Christ up to our present day, we find that there is an increased intellectual understanding of God without acceptance of his righteousness, holiness, and justice, much less the need for his forgiveness. Therefore, the world has either removed God completely or reduced God to a being who cannot possibly be known, who is not interested in our lives, and who has no involvement in our lives. But when you remove God from the world, then you need to explain the world in some other way. So they strain to come up with fantastical explanations for the origin of the universe from nothing, by nothing, without any evidence. And from that, they must conclude that there is no purpose for life, so enjoy what you can. Now, the Lord Jesus straddles time like a giant. And this is what he says. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Think about that. This baby, rocked and nursed by Mary, was the creator of the universe. God himself in the flesh, and he remains so today. So do you know Jesus Christ this morning? I don't mean as an historical figure. Did you know that Jesus is God Almighty? He's not the Jesus of Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, nor the Jesus of any of the cults. He is the Almighty God, the Father, Counselor, Creator of the ends of the earth who never grows weary. And in that manger lay God himself cooing and spitting up his milk. It was clear to the shepherds who went out and spread the word. That's why the wise men traveled and came later to bow down before him and worship him as a young child. But when we speak of the advent of Jesus to our friends and people we greet, it should not be some helpless infant, but as the Christ who is glorified and rules over Topeka, Chicago, Zimbabwe, Malaysia, Venezuela, and even Washington, D.C. 
Most people simply do not know why Christ come, came. They've been inoculated against it by years and years of Christmas lights, pine trees, mistletoe, wrapping paper, Black Fridays, sleigh rides, and Santas. As a result, they do not hear and accept certain realities, and therefore they face hell at the end of their lives. So, from whom will they hear? So far, we've said that Jesus came not only to take away sins, destroy the works of the devil, and to make the Father known, but also he came to prepare for a second advent. 1 John 3, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Jesus says himself in John 14, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Acts 1 records the words of the angels as they address the men of Galilee. Why do you stand there gazing up into the heaven after the ascension? And that's a great question. Instead of gawking into the sky, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. He's given us a work to do while we wait. Wait until what? Well, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you have seen him go. In Hebrews 9, the author says that Jesus will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The New Testament is literally filled with this great assurance, all of which is as important to the gospel and the message of Christmas as is the nativity. If Jesus Christ is not coming back again, then much of the New Testament is false. The angels are wrong. Jesus was misguided when he said he was coming back. In fact, it's clear that there are many who do not believe that he's coming back again and therefore think that they will never have to face him or his judgment. Yet they have no problem with recognizing and perhaps even singing songs about a baby in a manger. Why? Because the feeling, the sentimentality, the tradition is so great that they can go along with it even without a thought about its truth. But just as surely as he came to Bethlehem, he will come in glory. Unless it's a fairy tale, we cannot accept his first coming without anticipating his second coming. Those who don't give Jesus or his return a second thought, who ignore God's rule in the universe, who could not care less, do so at their own peril. Paul tells us that when he comes, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, that's a terrifying verse, but it's there. They've told us what the people who reject him can expect. Now, some just choose not to think about eternity. Others struggle mightily with what they perceive as counterintuitive, if not the cruelty 
of God. At some point in life, they heard and perhaps adopted the message that God is love and nothing more. He is love, but he is so much more. And perhaps it was just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But their doubts arise when they see pain and suffering of Christians and others and even themselves. So that message does not seem to ring true to them. And then Bible believers come along and say that when the lost die, they suffer eternally. And so they ask, if God's really so loving, why would he condemn anyone to an eternity of destruction and torment? Well, a true and very simple answer is he does not. Rather, each one chooses his or her own destiny by their decision to accept Christ as Savior or not. But allow me to suggest another response, because it really depends on your baseline, the point at which you start. The person conflicted about God's goodness is looking from a perspective of mankind, of the creature's self-centered and subjective feelings. If he... Jesus is the creator and king of the universe, that's not the place to start. They are asking the wrong question. Instead, we should all be asking, if God is perfectly pure, righteous, holy, and just, why should he allow any of us in his presence at all? We're not anything close to his perfection. So what the Bible tells us is the best news of all. It's the message that the only reason for God's mercy, not giving us what we deserve, is his grace giving us what we do not deserve to satisfy his perfect justice, what we really deserve, which is an eternity in hell. That is God's perfect love for those who humble their proud hearts, every true believer, and decide to follow him. This is done simply by true repentance for our sins and acceptance of the sacrifice that Jesus, the baby in the manger who lived a short but perfect life as God in the flesh and then willingly went to suffer the torture and pain that all of us, you and I, deserve as payment for our sins. If you look at it from that perspective, sending those who do not so follow him makes perfect sense. If God were simply to give everybody a get-out-of-hell-free card, then we could continue sinning. Not just the fibs and the little compromises, but murders, adultery, all kinds of monstrous acts and crimes against humanity. So this distinction, this division between the lost and the saved is for the good of all, even unbelievers during their lifetime. It's up to each one of us to make that decision if one does not ever want God in his or her life, God obliges, doesn't force us, gives us what is desired, and abandons that person for eternity. So, how about you? Are you ready for his second coming? Do you truly know him? Do you not just believe that he exists, but believe in him? Now, each one of us can only speak for ourselves. We can't judge where anybody else is at. You know, if somebody were to ask the question, are you a true Christian? Yeah, some might respond, well, I went through confirmation class in my church. I was baptized as a child. I always went to church and served on several committees. 
So if any of you stake your claim on heaven based on anything like those reasons, I would suggest that you take stock. Recall this terrible reminder that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, that there will be many who are acting like believers and doing good things in his name. But he will say to those people sitting in pews, relying upon those good things in his name, depart from me, I never knew you. Others might say, well, I tried to keep the Ten Commandments, and it's true that God's moral law is described as a schoolmaster or a guardian to lead us to Christ. How so? It expresses his holiness and righteousness when we consider that no human being possibly can or ever will follow that law perfectly. It causes us to understand why we need a Savior who came as a baby in the manger. So what is a true believer? 1 John 3 tells us that a true believer is not someone who's perfect, but a true believer does not continue in sin, not characterized by sin. In the life of a true believer, sin's dominion has been broken. We are now a new person in Christ. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist. Now, that is evidenced by a transformed life. Notice I say evidenced, not earned. The evidence of the transformation is the believer growing in knowledge and faith day by day. Jesus tells us, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, to conclude, he is coming back. If not, as Paul exclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, and we of all people are most to be pitied. He is coming back, or the Bible isn't true, and the Christmas season is the greatest of frauds. So, to review, why did Jesus Christ come? To take away our sins. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb. When the bridegroom comes, will your robes be pure white? He came to defeat Satan's work. Are you living in the life of that victory? He came to make the Father known. Do you know the Father? Do you know him personally? And are you knowing him more and more every day? And finally, to prepare for the second advent. If you know you're saved, this is the absolute best news you could ever hear. If you're not, this is the worst news you could ever hear. Contrary to what I said earlier, I really am Scrooge in the end. And so are you. Because the standard to be with God is perfection. And I was just as undeserving as Scrooge. I was a self-centered kid, had a pretty good life, but had a godly mother. And to be honest, I don't think I gave eternity any thought at all, in my, even though I was in church my whole growing up life. But with a mix of influences in my life and a campus evangelist who wormed his way into our frat room, uh, to witness to my roommate while sitting at my desk, just eavesdropping on the conversation, it finally made sense that God loves me and he died for my sins. So, for you and me, 
Perhaps if we can send a message to family and others that there is a real reason beyond red, green, and white things in Christmas, an eternally more important reason to celebrate the coming of the Christ child, you may be part of that mix if you don't even just lead them directly that eventually allows them to recognize their sins, their need for a Savior, and accept the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as payment for sin, come to know him personally, and spend eternity with him. Would you rise? And uh, we'll say this one little verse out of Luke 2. Here we go. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day 